0: Beginning on the northwestern extremity of the group, I explored the chief tributary basins in succession, their moraines, roche moutonnées, and splendid glacier pavements, taking them in regular succession without any reference to the time consumed in their study. The monuments of the tributary that poured its ice from between red and black mountains I found to be the most interesting of them all and when I saw its magnificent moraines extending in majestic curves from the spacious amphitheater between the mountains, I was exhilarated with the work that lay before me. It was one of the golden days of the Sierra Indian summer, when the rich sunshine glorifies every landscape, however rocky and cold, and suggests anything rather than glaciers. The path of the vanished glacier was warm now and shone in many places as if washed with silver. The tall pines growing on the moraine stood transfigured in the glowing light. The poplar groves on the levels of the basin were masses of orange-yellow, and the late-blooming goldenrods added gold to gold. Pushing on over my rosy glacial highway, I passed lake after lake set in solid basins of granite, and many a thicket and meadow watered by a stream that issues from the amphitheatre and links the lakes together, now wading through plushy bogs knee-deep in yellow and purple sphagnum. The main lateral moraines that bounded the view on either hand are from one hundred to nearly two hundred feet high, and about as regular as artificial embankments, and covered with a superb growth of silver fir and pine. But this garden and forest luxuriance was speedily left behind. The trees were dwarfed as I ascended. Patches of the alpine bryanthus and cassiope began to appear, and arctic willows pressed into flat carpets by the winter snow. The lakelets, which a few miles down the valley were so richly embroidered with flowery meadows, had here, at an elevation of ten thousand feet, only small brown mats of carex. "'leaving bare rocks around more than half their shores. "'Yet amid this alpine suppression, "'the mountain pine bravely tossed his storm-beaten branches "'on the ledges and buttresses of Red Mountain, "'some specimens being over one hundred feet high "'and twenty-four feet in circumference, "'seemingly as fresh and vigorous as the giants of the lower zones. "'Evening came on just as I got fairly within the portal "'of the main amphitheater. It is about a mile wide, and a little less than two miles long. The crumbling spurs and battlements of Red Mountain bounded on the north, the somber, rudely sculptured precipices of Black Mountain on the south, and a hacked splintery coal curving from mountain to mountain shuts it in on the east. I chose a camping ground on the brink of one of the lakes where a thicket of hemlock spruce sheltered me from the night wind, Then, after making a tin cupful of tea, I sat by my campfire reflecting on the grandeur and significance of the glacial records I had seen. As the night advanced, the mighty rock walls of my mountain mansion seemed to come nearer, while the starry sky in glorious brightness stretched across like a ceiling from wall to wall, and fitted closely down into all the spiky irregularities of the summits. Then, after a long fireside rest and a glance at my notebook, I cut a few leafy branches for a bed, and fell into the clear, deathlike sleep of the tired mountaineer. Early next morning I set out to trace the grand old glacier that had done so much for the beauty of the Yosemite region back to its farthest fountains, enjoying the charm that every explorer feels in nature's untrodden wildernesses. The voices of the mountains were still asleep. The wind scarce stirred the pine needles. The sun was up, but it was yet too cold for the birds and the few burrowing animals that dwell here. Only the stream, cascading from pool to pool, seemed to be wholly awake. Yet the spirit of the opening day called to action. The sunbeams came streaming gloriously through the jagged openings of the coal. Glancing on the burnished pavements and lighting the silvery lakes, while every sun-touched rock burned white on its edges like melting iron in a furnace. Passing round the north shore of my camp lake, I followed the central stream past many cascades from lakelet to lakelet. The scenery became more rigidly arctic, the dwarf pines and hemlocks disappeared, and the stream was bordered with icicles. As the sun rose higher, rocks were loosened on shattered portions of the cliffs and came down in rattling avalanches, echoing wildly from crag to crag. The main lateral moraines that extend from the jaws of the amphitheater into the Illouette basin are continued in straggling masses along the walls of the amphitheater, while separate boulders, hundreds of tons in weight, are left stranded here and there out in the middle of the channel. Here, also, I observe a series of small terminal moraines, ranged along the south wall of the amphitheater, corresponding in size and form with the shadows cast by the highest portions. The meaning of this correspondence between moraines and shadows was afterward made plain. Tracing the stream back to the last of its chain of lakelets, I noticed a deposit of fine gray mud on the bottom, Except where the force of the entering current had prevented its settling. It looked like the mud worn from a grindstone, and I at once suspected its glacial origin, for the stream that was carrying it came gurgling out of the base of a raw moraine that seemed in process of formation. Not a plant or weather stain was visible on its rough, unsettled surface. It is from sixty to over one hundred feet high, and plunges forward at an angle of thirty-eight degrees. Cautiously picking my way, I gained the top of the moraine and was delighted to see a small but well-characterized glacier swooping down from the gloomy precipices of Black Mountain in a finely graduated curve to the moraine on which I stood. The compact ice appeared on all the lower portions of the glacier though gray with dirt and stones embedded in it. Farther up, the ice disappeared beneath coarse granulated snow. The surface of the glacier was further characterized by dirt bands and the outcropping edges of the blue veins, showing the laminated structure of the ice. The uppermost crevasse, or bergschrung, where the neve was attached to the mountain, was from twelve to fourteen feet wide, and was bridged in a few places by the remains of snow avalanches. Creeping along the edge of the Shrund, holding on with benumbed fingers, I discovered clear sections where the bedded structure was beautifully revealed. The surface snow, though sprinkled with stones shot down from the cliffs, was in some places almost pure gradually becoming crystalline, and changing to whitish, porous ice of different shades of color, and this again changing at a depth of twenty or thirty feet to blue ice, some of the ribbon-like bands of which were nearly pure, and blended with the paler bands in the most gradual and delicate manner imaginable. A series of rugged zigzags enabled me to make my way down into the weird underworld of the crevasse. Its chambered hollows were hung with a multitude of clustered icicles, amid which pale subdued light pulsed and shimmered with indescribable loveliness. Water dripped and tinkled overhead, and from far below came strange, solemn murmurings from currents that were feeling their way through veins and fissures in the dark. The chambers of a glacier are perfectly enchanting, notwithstanding one feels out of place in their frosty beauty. I was soon cold in my shirt sleeves, and the leaning wall threatened to engulf me, yet it was hard to leave the delicious music of the water in the lovely light. Coming again to the surface, I noticed boulders of every size on their journeys to the terminal moraine, journeys of more than a hundred years, without a single stop, night or day, winter or summer. The sun gave birth to a network of sweet-voiced rills that ran gracefully down the glacier, curling and swirling in their shining channels, and cutting clear sections through the porous surface ice into the solid blue, where the structure of the glacier was beautifully illustrated. The series of small terminal moraines which I had observed in the morning, along the south wall of the amphitheatre, correspond in every way with the moraine of this glacier, and their distribution with reference to shadows was now understood. When the climatic changes came on that caused the melting and retreat of the main glacier that filled the amphitheater, a series of residual glaciers were left in the cliff shadows, under the protection of which they lingered, until they formed the moraines we are studying. Then, as the snow became still less abundant, all of them vanished in succession, EXCEPT THE ONE JUST DESCRIBED, AND THE CAUSE OF ITS LONGER LIFE IS SUFFICIENTLY APPARENT IN THE GREATER AREA OF SNOW BASIN IT DRAINS, AND ITS MORE PERFECT PROTECTION FROM WASTING SUNSHINE. HOW MUCH LONGER THIS LITTLE GLACIER WILL LAST DEPENDS, OF COURSE, ON THE AMOUNT OF SNOW IT RECEIVES FROM YEAR TO YEAR, AS COMPARED WITH MELTING WASTE. After this discovery, I made excursions over all the High Sierra, pushing my explorations summer after summer, and discovered that what at first sight in the distance looked like extensive snowfields were in great part glaciers, busily at work completing the sculpture of the summit peaks so grandly blocked out by their giant predecessors. On August twenty-first, I set a series of stakes in the McClure Glacier near Mount Lyell, and found its rate of motion to be little more than an inch a day in the middle, showing a great contrast to the Muir Glacier in Alaska, which near the front flows at a rate from 5 to 10 feet in 24 hours. Mount Shasta has three glaciers, but Mount Whitney, although it is the highest mountain in the range, does not now cherish a single glacier. Small patches of lasting snow and ice occur on its northern slopes, but they are shallow and present no well-marked evidence of glacial motion. Its sides, however, are scored and polished in many places by the action of its ancient glaciers that flowed east and west as tributaries of the great glaciers that once filled the valleys of the Kern and Owens rivers. End of Chapter 2 The glaciers.